Mysteries of ages past, unenlightened shadows cast down through all eternity. The crying of humanity. Tis then when the hurdy gurdy man comes singing songs of love. Then when the hurdy gurdy man comes singing songs of love. Hello and welcome to episode six of Ghost Stories for the End of the World. I hope you are good. Um, I know it's kind of a head trip living through the decline and fall of Western civilization that's occurring at the moment. Um, I saw a pretty good post a couple of weeks ago that said something like, we are currently in the and this led to phase of history. And I have to say that that is hitting pretty hard as 2020 rolls on. But all that said, we are here, we are alive. So let's have another dive down another rabbit hole, but with a twist this time, because although this show's remit is generally the weird occult history of post-war parapolitics and deep state doings, I thought it might be quite interesting to step back a little further in time for this episode, say a century, a century and a half. And that's because last time out, we touched on Italy's three main mafia syndicates quite a lot while discussing the years of lead and the murder of Aldo Moro. But I thought for this episode, it could be quite instructive to investigate the origins of Cosa Nostra, the Andrangheta and the Camorra, and to have a think about why Italy proved to be such a fertile environment for these syndicates to, um, to develop in. So it's fair to say that uh, I first became interested in history and politics because I had a pretty unhealthy interest in the Sicilian Mafia when I was a pothead teenager. Um, and at first, though, like everyone, I was enthralled by the stories of people like Lucky Luciano and Al Capone, uh, Murder Incorporated and the Prohibition Era. And like everyone else in the Anglo world, my reference points were generally the pop cultural iconography surrounding the American mob. Things like The Sopranos or Goodfellas or The Godfather. And that's the last time I will be mentioning any of them in this episode, by the way. So don't worry about that. But after a while, I started reading more and more about the Sicilian Mafia. And I realized pretty quickly that the organized crime syndicates in Italy are very different to their offspring in the U.S., Nowadays, we tend to think of the mafia as something outmoded. And while the American mafia is a very diminished force stateside and the fat, semi-literate New York mob boss talking in circles and chewing on cigars is pretty much a punchline in US pop culture, the original three Italian mafias and their various splinter groups are doing just fine. As the historian John Dickey has said time and again, organized crime in Italy isn't just a few street gangs selling drugs and extorting businesses. Life under mafia rule is a regime and all three syndicates regularly infiltrate the economic and civic institutions around them to further their economic and political goals. 
And that phrase, political goals, is very important to, particularly when it comes to Cosa Nostra. Ultimately, though, the main reason I think this is such a fascinating subject that bears a whole episode's worth of discussion is that for a long time, the existence of these groups was pretty much an open secret. But talk of shadowy, parasitic, Masonic influenced criminal syndicates that functioned as shadow states alongside the legitimate Italian political system was officially dismissed out of hand by plenty of academics, politicians, cops, and journalists as a wild conspiracy theory. And it wasn't until the early 20th century that a broader acceptance of the mafia began. Until then, Mafia was considered by a lot of sociologists and criminologists and people like that as being more a set of cultural and social norms and customs. It was described as a kind of boastful defiance that was simply inherent to Southern Italians. It wasn't really until the late 70s and 80s that the Italian state officially began to grapple with the full scale of the problem. And only then, it was because a former mobster, who we've talked about before, called Tommaso Buscetta, turned state's witness and for the first time laid out the hierarchy and governing structure of Cosa Nostra and its relationship with the state, while the violence and the instability that the second mafia war generated was making the denials and the obfuscation from prominent politicians in the ruling DC party look increasingly suspicious and absurd they had no choice but to finally acknowledge that yeah there are these very dangerous and very real criminal syndicates ruling parts of the country in tandem with the so-called legitimate authorities now just as a little footnote because i'll be referring to all of these organizations as mafias for the remainder of this episode but i should probably point out that initially the word mafia only really applied to the sicilian organization uh, there's some speculation that the word is i believe arabic in origin and it roughly means something like bold or beautiful but because the sicilian clans ended up becoming maybe the most famous criminal organization of all time the word mafia is used now to refer not just to any Italian organized crime group, but every organized crime group around the world. So you'll hear talk of a Serbian mafia, a Russian mafia, an Irish mafia, so on and so forth. Um, so when I mention the Sicilian mafia, I'll try to remember to refer to it as Cosa Nostra to try and minimize the confusion. But it does need to be emphasized that while all three of the Italian syndicates share a lot of characteristics, they are very distinct organizations. So my bad if I end up calling Comora Mafia as well as Cosa Nostra as well as Andrangheta. So where to even begin with the the origins of these of these organizations? Um, by their very nature, these are very shadowy, secretive outfits. So nobody has really settled on a definitive version of how exactly they formed, but we understand the general outlines now. But there is a story that the Andrangheta bosses passed down to new generations about how the three causes, as they sometimes call them, actually began. And the story goes that in Spain, in the early 1400s, there was a group called the Garduna, 
and it was a secret brotherhood that were supposed to protect the weak from the abuses of the powerful. And there were three brothers who were knights of the Garduna. They were Oso, Mastroso, and Casanoso. And they had a sister who was raped by a corrupt nobleman and a favorite of the Spanish court. But the three brothers avenged her honor by killing him. So the Spanish royal family sentenced them to death. And there are two different versions of what happens next. In one, the three brothers flee Spain and wind up shipwrecked in a storm and wash up on the island of Favignana, which is just west of Sicily. They spend 30 years living in a cave, slowly assembling a new brotherhood along the lines of the Garduna. In another version, they are captured by the Spanish authorities and are actually sentenced to 30 years in the prison fortress on Favignana, which at that time was part of Spain's territory. Now, both versions sync up again when on the first day of the 30th year, the three brothers split up. Oso goes to Sicily and founds the Sicilian Mafia. Mastroso goes to Calabria and starts the Andrangheta. And Casanoso went to Campania, where he started the Camorra. Of course, the story of the three knights is a gangster fairy tale, but it does tell us a little bit about how the mafias view themselves, not as organized crime groups who exploit as much as they can from the people who live under their rule, but as noble brotherhoods with a sacred mission. We have the classic tropes that you see in mafia fiction up to this day. We have the concept of family loyalty, of honor and blood vendettas, oaths of secrecy and vows to protect the weak from the powerful and corrupt. And in truth, the origins of the three syndicates, while pretty murky, are relatively modern. And it's fair to say that they were born at roughly the same time as the Italian state. And for a long time, they all peddled some variation of the idea that being a mafioso and being a Sicilian or a Calabrian or a Neapolitan were one and the same thing that they weren't really criminal societies, but were a set of ineradicable cultural and social traditions that stretched back thousands of years, as we've already mentioned. And it's precisely because of this that it, has, it took so long and was so hard for cops and magistrates and investigators and journalists and the like to actually sketch out a proper picture of what these things actually are. So the Camorra is the oldest of the three mafias and the consensus now is that it began in roughly the late 18th century, maybe formed as a prison gang in the brutal Italian penal system. The word Camorra itself first appears in 1735 and it combines the word capo or boss with mora, which is an old Italian word for a very, very ancient gambling game. By the early 19th century, what had been 
separate street gangs shaking down businesses and committing robberies had begun to merge into a more formal structure with internal rules and ranks that were supposed to keep everybody in line. Now, this was happening against the backdrop of the French Revolutionary Wars. And like any good criminal syndicate, the Camorra used the chaos of Napoleon's conquests and the backlash that led to the Bourbon Restoration as an opportunity to insinuate itself deeper into Neapolitan society. So while the state was struggling to get a grip on waves of revolt and insurgencies, people realized that they could only really turn to the local Camorra boss for a favor, like a job or some food or protection from other thieves and bandits. And this isn't to endorse the myth of this Robin Hood type mafioso. I mean, none of this was benevolent, but it's just a, a product of the social conditions at the time. So I don't really want to get too deep into the words with this particular period of Italian history, you know, the Napoleonic conquests and whatnot, because honestly, I am so interested in it that I could go on all day and never get back to the topic at hand. So I will try to keep things as simple as possible. From 1817 to 1860, Naples was the capital of the kingdom of the two Sicilies. And this was a kind of autonomous kingdom that stretched from Sicily to roughly the southern half of the Italian peninsula. And the Camorra's influence amongst the Italian urban poor didn't go unnoticed by the idealistic Italian liberal nationalists who wanted to overthrow the kingdom and unify Italy into a republic. And before long, these well-meaning revolutionaries were soliciting the local capo's help in staging protests, strikes, robberies, riots, all that good shit, all around Naples and the wider region. And many of these Italian liberals were also members of Masonic lodges and other secret sects that were inspired by the French Revolution and were sworn to spread revolutionary Enlightenment principles. So there's a side point that I need to make here, which it's about Freemasonry in Europe. Um, we've touched on or alluded to the Masons in the last couple of episodes a number of times, and we will be circling back to them again and again in episodes to come. And I am aware that that is a very delicate subject for anybody to be discussing, especially when you combine that with um, the kind of deep, weird political histories that this podcast is fixated on. There's a very good chance that you can lose a lot of people if you don't handle it right. So I need to clarify right now that when I'm talking about the Freemasons, I'm not talking about them the same way David Icke or QAnon or any of those fucking crackpots do. I don't believe they're a plot hatched by Jews to control the world or that they did 9-11 to steal gold from the basement of World Trade Center 7. Um, I'm talking about the actual Freemasons as they existed in this period of history. The old boys club where influential people got together to get drunk and talk shop and, you know, shoot the shit on, on this here enlightenment that was causing such a ruckus on the continent. That That's the Freemasons that I'm talking about. Now, I think it's obvious by now that I'm of the belief that some of these guys have ended up planning a lot of terrible things that hurt a lot of people. But what I also hope you know is that I don't go in for the idea that these guys are 
Jewish reptides from planet X are that they're hatching plots to summon ancient blood gods or some bullshit like that. So anyway, moving on. A lot of the Italian liberal radical types joined revolutionary secret societies that were either full-on Freemasons or were very influenced by Masonic Enlightenment thought. And one of the better known ones from this time is the Carbonari or the Charcoal Burners. And when members of these groups were busted for acts of political subversion, they found themselves doing time with gangsters who might become useful allies in a possible revolution. And they would at least be extremely handy to have on side in the immediate surroundings of Italy's prison system. So it was a no-brainer, these liberal radicals thought, to make these mobsters and gangsters full-on initiates into these revolutionary underground groups. So the prison camoristi, in return, were very taken with the idea of a sworn secret society, and they started to apply the same organisational methods and principles to the gangs that they were running inside. And they were particularly keen on the idea of having a very menacing initiation ritual. So they took the basic concept and mixed it with their own mythology about the Garduna, and they filtered it through a blend of Southern Italian folklore and Catholic-inflected mysticism. Cosa Nostra and the Andrangheta have very similar initiation rituals, and they all stem from this overlap between folk custom, Masonic revolutionary sects, and prison gangs. So the initiation ritual for all three syndicates is broadly similar, although the Camorra's modern initiation ritual is quite different, which I will tell you more about in a second. But first, uh, potential recruits are tested over a certain amount of time and they are monitored very closely while they take part in different kinds of crimes and their character and temperament is, is observed very, very, very closely. And they're reminded constantly that joining one of these groups means being born again into a new identity and a new moral framework. Uh, discretion, ruthlessness, and an unquestioning obedience are the traits that the bosses are looking for. Um, committing a murder is usually always the final requirement to join. And after that, the recruit will be called to a meeting where he'll find the clan boss and a couple of his advisors, his consiglieri, his underboss, flanking him. And they'll usually be standing behind a table that has a dagger, a gun, and a picture of a saint laid out on it. And the initiate has his finger pricked and smears blood on the image of the saint. And then while it burns, he cups his hand around it and recites the oath of loyalty to his family. Uh, some of the Cosa Nostra clans, because of what we'll discuss more in a minute, their relationship to the citrus groves of Sicily, some of those guys actually use uh, thorns from citrus bushes to prick the fingers of initiates to reinforce that air of tradition and mysticism. Uh, the burning saint is supposed to symbolize the annihilation of all traitors, but I, I can't actually find any accounts of what happens if the flames are like too hot and you drop the picture midway through the ceremony, but I'm guessing uh, your boss will not be amused if that happens at the very least. Now, not to get too far off on this tangent about the initiation ritual, but the benefits of these ceremonies from a psychological perspective are pretty self-evident. Um, they help discipline younger, 
more hot-headed recruits and they lend an air of tradition and malevolence to the clans. And within a few generations, most mobsters were actually under the mistaken impression that their honored societies, as they call them, dated all the way back to ancient times. And even someone like Tommaso Buscetta, who was known in the mafia as generally a very smart and savvy killer and entrepreneur, became deeply cynical about the Sicilian mafia by the time he was giving evidence to Italian prosecutors, even he still earnestly believed the folk tales that were passed down to him by his bosses. And once again, creating this mystifying air of occult ritual helped the early mafia syndicates embed themselves in Southern Italian culture to the point where it became a widespread belief that this culture and Southern Italian culture were one and the same thing. So just to pick up on the Camorra point as well, from what I've read, their modern initiation ritual is, is quite a lot simpler and dispenses with all of that shit. Basically, they take uh, potential members out to a deserted area, strap them with a Kevlar vest and put two or three nine millimeter bullets into the Kevlar vest. And the point is to teach them not to be afraid of gunfire, to teach them not to be afraid of bullets. And if you can do that without pissing yourself or crying and running away, you can be a member. So this idea of mafia culture is actually very important as well, because without constructing a wall of omerta, the early clans would not really have had as much chance of surviving as they did. So that meant bringing the people um, around your syndicate in your territory on side. And one of the ways they did this is with uh, folk mythology, um, music especially. In fact, there's a rich history of rebel songs from the south of Italy that center mafiosi as romantic figures standing up to the corrupt and powerful are talking about the harsh life of prisoners and outlaws. Um, in fact, I have a little snippet of one of these ballads here telling the story of how the three mafias began. Da patria fichi si li tramandaro, visti si leggi di la società, leggi musigni un tastoria da saru. And of course, every generation reinterprets these songs and themes for contemporary audiences. Uh. 
la mala vita è polizia è la stessa cosa e non so capisciuta ancora c'è delle due più mafiose Chiappe le chiuffra a To get back to the early 19th century though, so the Camoristi and the other criminals mingling with these imprisoned lib radicals during the revolutionary firmament of this time period uh, helped forge useful connections between the Italian middle and upper classes and these Camorra type groups and pretty soon they began referring to themselves as brotherhoods and these very soon after began to appear in Western Sicily and Calabria. Now, as far as the Camorra and the revolutionary cells interacting in the prisons, I should say here that I'm not trying to give you the impression that the origins of these mafia groups are as clear cut and easy to plot out on a historical timeline as this. Their development process was obviously far murkier than the idea that there is a single day in history that we can point to and say, this is the day when the first bosses sat down and formally created these secret outfits. But all current academic research points to this period in Italian history as being crucial in the ultimate formation of what we now think of as a modern mafia syndicate. But... Truth be told, the Sicilian Mafia might never have developed at all were it not for a catastrophically botched transition from feudalism to capitalism that happened on the island in the early 19th century. And the British got the ball rolling, weirdly enough, so I apologise on behalf of my countrymen, um, because they decided to abolish the feudal system in Sicily while they were occupying the island between 1806 and 1814. Now, I'm not knocking the idea of abolishing feudalism, but obviously you need some kind of plan in place for how you are going to proceed once you remove that social structure. So until that point, the nobility had been using private militias to guard their land from rivals and thieves, and the militias were supervised generally by these brutal middle managers that were called gabalotti. And these guys would force the local peasants into working the land for practically nothing. And as more and more of the land was parceled up and sold off to private citizens as feudalism's abolition picked up steam, it created this ferocious, untethered free market system. And by the time Garibaldi conquered Sicily in 1860, the great Italian patriotic hero, um, contributing to Italian unification, of course, Sicily was virtually a free-for-all of competing um, gangs and bandits, landlords and cops, and the peasants, thinking that they had a shout at revolution, were absolutely stunned when Garibaldi sided with the landlords and encouraged them to suppress the revolts against the aristocracy. Now, the state, which is supposed to hold what the sociologist Leopoldo Franchetti calls a monopoly on violence, that is, the sole right to apply force in order to compel a private citizen to behave a certain way. The state found itself completely overwhelmed by the job of governing Sicily. During this period, they never had more than 400 cops to patrol the whole island. Add to that the fact that the ones they did have were either hopelessly corrupt incompetent or some combination of the two that the rest were unable to do their jobs without being targeted for assassination 
and an absolutely atrocious transport infrastructure. And you have a society that can only really turn to the local crime bosses, the Gabalotti, and their private armies to co-sign business deals, protect property, and generally ensure that both legal and illegal markets function in a profitable and relatively peaceful and stable way. And the way that you make sure the legal markets function like that is by corrupting local politics and public services to make sure that they turn the other way. And there's more than a few modern analogues to this. But the one that I'm thinking of first and foremost is probably Russia in the 1990s, where the collapse of the USSR led to a horrific wave of economic um, shock therapy that gave rise to dozens of mafia-like syndicates and oligarchs who were shooting and killing their way into the new economy while the state struggled to pull itself together. Um, Kosovo and Serbia would also be another two very, very good examples of how that looks in a modern context. The citrus groves around Palermo are where these very early proto-mafia clans refine their methods. A Diego Gambetta has called the mafiosos entrepreneurs in violence a collection of private protection cartels and their proximity to the booming citrus fruit industry in Sicily allowed them to obtain lucrative jobs guarding lemon and orange groves for wealthy landowners. And they'd also use these positions to extort merchants, create smuggling routes for cattle rustlers and illegal butchers and make contacts in Sicily's ruling class. And eventually they wound up taxing every single transaction that took place on their territory, whether it was legal or illegal. And because the cops were incapable of policing the island, the mafia also became a kind of private police force. So, for example... Suppose you are an aristocrat and someone steals horses from your stable and you know the police will not get them back. There's just no chance that anybody is talking to the cops. But the mobster who you've employed as a security guard on your estate, he will have a very good chance of getting those horses back. So you go to him and he puts out the word and he negotiates the return of the horses in exchange for a finder's fee and gradually the best and brightest gabalotti and bandits, cattle rustlers, assassins and thieves, together with crooked lawyers, cops and mayors and civil servants, joined up to form the dozens of clans which we today call the Sicilian Mafia. And 200 years on, their role is still essentially to extract the maximum amount of profit from a given transaction through the strategic application of violence and they then protect themselves from the legal consequences of committing those acts of violence by cultivating networks of extremely powerful friends. What vexed so many sociologists in the 19th century was how the Sicilian Mafia contradicted everything that they thought they knew about crime and its social causes. Because the thinking was that as society developed, crime would inevitably dwindle to nothing. Um, and on top of that, you have to remember that a lot of so social scientists at the time had very, very strange ideas about crime as a social phenomena. And it was normal for them to exhibit prisoners at universities and in scientific roadshows and point out how big ears or a broad forehead or an overbite or some shit made someone more prone to be a thief or a rapist or a drunk. 
And to them, Southern Italians were innately prone to criminality because they were simple peasants who lived sinful, violent lives and also had darker skin than Northern Italians. I mean, this is the mentality that we're up against in this time period. So Cosa Nostra was from the start primarily a bourgeois phenomena. It was intimately connected to the wealthy, educated upper classes and the aristocracy of Sicily. And what really sent a lot of the more bonkers criminologists to the fainting couch was the fact that you could sometimes even find judges, doctors and lawyers living a double life as members of the mafia. And there were plenty of aristocrats who were seen strolling arm in arm with mafia capos around local piazzas. But the bigoted view in many Northern Italians had of Southerners infected academic analysis of the phenomena for decades, as we mentioned before. And it would take years for the first comprehensive study of the Sicilian mafia to be written up. This was the one by Leopoldo Franchetti and Sidney Sanino in 1877. And it's still, it's still a pretty authoritative piece of work. Um, if I can find the link to the PDF, I'll include it in the show notes. But of course, by 1877, Cosa Nostra was deeply embedded in Sicilian society and it had become what was by then termed an instrument of local government with contacts everywhere from Palermo to Naples to Rome and even into the Vatican. It had become an organization that considered itself effectively a shadow state with plenty of bosses also acting as mayors and cops and clergy. Whatever this was, it was obviously something more than just a run-of-the-mill street gang. And this vibe of exceptionalism is another important component of mafia thinking too because they still actively instill in their members uh, in the same way that politicians like to talk grandly of ordering drone st strikes and assassinations as being for the greater good. Gangsters in the mafia like to think of their business as part of a bigger cause, something that it doesn't just place them above the moral judgment of ordinary people, but it also exempts them from being placed in the same categories as non-mafia criminals. It's a whole different mindset that is very hard to understand when you are first kind of reading uh, testimonies from former mobsters. And even when big investigations did happen, like the one undertaken by Inspector San Giorgi around the early 1900s, it was extremely difficult for him to make people understand what a mafia clan actually was. And time and again, Italy would decide the mafia was just, as we said, a set of cultural norms and values and certainly nothing like an organised criminal phenomenon. So the Indrangheta emerged not long after the Camorra in Calabria, which is the very southern portion of the peninsula. And there were local cops and reporters from the outset referring to them as Camoristi. And as with the other two groups, they benefited from an extremely chaotic, corrupt local government and ineffective law enforcement. And the Andrangheta were initially viewed as the poorer, less sophisticated cousin to the other two organisations. And it wouldn't be until the mid-1970s when they would actually take their operations truly global. But when they did, they very quickly caught up to Cosa Nostra and the Camorra. And today they are easily the wealthiest and the most powerful of all three. 
And if I recall correctly, Andrangata income from illegal and legal businesses alone accounts for something like 3.5% of Italy's national GDP. And that's just that one mafia syndicate, the Andrangata. And they also tend to maintain a far closer relationship to the Sicilian Mafia than they do to the Camorra, although the balance of power in the relationship with the Sicilians has shifted decisively towards the Calabrians in the wake of Cosa Nostra's disastrous uh, 1980s and 1990s bombing campaigns. And generally, while the Andrangata still gets hit by the same waves of investigations and mass arrests as the other two, it's a much more stable outfit and this is mostly due to the fact that Andrangata clans are generally much closer knit and it's not unusual for them to be co composed entirely of blood relatives. And Cosa Nostra ended up borrowing this blood relatives only policy when it was rebuilding its ranks in the early 2000s. So all three mafias share broadly similar hierarchical setups, but they differ in some crucial ways in terms of methods and characteristics. Uh, Camorra clans generally have a much more horizontal and fluid structure, and they tend to see the greatest amount of turnover in management positions. And they're also probably the least beholden to the so-called uh, code of honor. And they discard the initiation ritual entirely, as we discussed earlier. And the more overtly occult and mystical stuff, they got rid of all that a very long time ago. Uh, Roberto Saviano, who is an investigative journalist who wrote the book Gomorrah, which they based the TV show on, he's written about how it's not unusual to see baby capos in the Gomorrah. And this is kids as young as 11 or 12 who supervise the open-air drug markets in Naples and they order around soldiers and dealers who are two or three times their age with complete confidence. Um, this is because kids, it's been uh, mentioned by uh, capos who've gone inside, kids make for better killers and enforcers because their sense of self, like their moral values, are much more malleable. Um, they don't question orders as much as adult mobsters and they will work for less money. And in a place like Southern Italy where youth unemployment is extremely high and opportunities are very limited, joining something like the Camorra and gaining all that prestige and power, obviously it's the oldest story in the world when it comes to kids getting involved in gangs. The Camorra also descends from the more patriarchal policies of Cosa Nostra and the Andrangata. There have been a bunch of women bosses running different clans. And one of the most famous probably is Pupetta Maresca. She's a former beauty queen who took over her husband Pasquale Simonetti's family in the 50s when he was killed by a rival boss. Uh, she would later gun down the boss who ordered the hit, Antonio Esposito, in broad daylight in the middle of Naples. And the reason why there is that huge churn in management that we mentioned is because the Camorra is generally very decentralized and the clans are crowd together in the underworld markets of Campania, which leads to wars breaking out extremely frequently, which draws the attention of a lot of cops. 
owing to this and more effective police operations against the senior leadership, this churn has increased in the last couple of decades and the average age of capos has gotten younger and younger as a consequence, which means today that you can find millennial and Zuma Kamara capos running rackets and building solid followings on like Instagram and Twitter and TikTok now as well. Now, while to some degree or another, all of the mafias are politically driven entities, the Sicilians in particular always aim to operate more as a shadow state than just a, a criminal enterprise to the point where it, it's basically, or it was, um, an equal objective alongside making money. And their primary concern was always gaining access to politicians and influential business leaders and co-managing Italian politics with the legitimate government. And the Camorra bosses were often heard on wiretaps mocking the Sicilians for wanting to be politicians, as they said. And when Cosa Nostra turned to terror bombing in the late 80s and 90s, some bosses from both the Camorra and the Indrangheta tried to step in and actually put an end to it in case it led to a harsher crackdown against all three of them and had a negative impact on business, which did end up happening anyway after the assassination of judges Falcone and Barcelino in 1993. Although Cosa Nostra's wealth and influence has diminished in the wake of the police investigations and a wave of former gangsters turning state's evidence, they still operate on a pretty large scale, although subversion has been their, sorry, submersion has been their watchword since the instability of the 80s and 90s. And they maintain a, a very tight grip on the rackets in their homeland. Um, a recent EU study, I think it came out around 2012, 13, so maybe not that recent, but it concluded that between 70 to 80% of businesses in Western Sicily still pay some form of protection money to the mafia, despite business owners and anti-mafia activists staging strikes and protests against the pizu, which means beak as in wet my beak. Um, in fact, I remember when I was in uh, Venice uh, the other year, I went past this pizzeria and I know Venice is way to the north of, of Sicily, but I went past this uh, pizzeria that had a banner hung up outside and it said, no mafia, no pizu, Venice is sacred. And it seems to have become a, a growing uh, phenomenon, does this, this wave of, of kind of protection money strikes against mafia syndicates, which, you know, more power to them. It seems pretty cool. Um, and again, like the Camorra, because Sicilian mafia clans tend to be quite small, they're more numerous, which means the chances of war between rival families is higher. Um, so to try and blunt the worst of this, senior bosses meet for rounds of consultation, which is what we know as the commission. And here is where the leadership talks business, approves different murders and discusses a um, broader strategy going forward. The makeup of the Sicilian clans tends to be older because for a while, a lot of mobsters forbid their sons from joining uh, the organization, particularly after the, the bloodletting of the 1980s. And I'm sorry to keep going back to that. And trust me, the episode on that is coming. <laughs> I do apologize for bringing that up time and again. Um, 
they suspended initiations actually through the 90s and they began again in the early part of the 21st century. And there's apparently been a kind of internal PR effort by the new ruling commission to encourage the guys who turn state's evidence to withdraw their testimony and return to the organization. And they do this by promising to forgive the betrayal and to also offer more than whatever the state is offering to pay them. And this is becoming quite a serious bone of contention at the moment in Italy, because obviously they're experiencing um, economic problems and a possible looming recession because of what COVID has done. And that means that there is going to be less money for uh, witness relocation, witness protection, less money to keep these guys on side, to keep new guys coming forward, which does potentially offer uh, a new avenue to rebuild for Cosa Nostra. Um, and it does seem to be working as well because the number of defectors today is way down on the numbers of people who were coming forward in the late 80s and throughout the 1990s. The Andrangata tends to hew the closest to the traditional rituals and mysticism of the early clans, and they're easily the most enamoured of mafia folklore, as we discussed with the story of the Three Knights. But it's filtered, obviously, through a very specifically Calabrian set of customs and traditions. And the Calabrian-based bosses still meet every year in the Aspromonte Mountains at the sanctuary of Our Lady of Palsy, which is a Christian refuge that dates all the way back to 1144. And there again is that, you know, reinforcing the sense that these are ancient, ineradicable um, societies, secret societies. And they're also probably the strictest of all in terms of uh, their own secrecy and maintaining this code of silence, this omerta. And in fact, to add another layer of protection against investigators, the Andrangata bosses created a second secret society within the organization in the 1970s, which they call La Santa. Andrangata gangsters outside of La Santa aren't even permitted to know who's a member, and the sect is extremely selective. And this has helped insulate them and blunt the worst of the effects of Italian and Interpol investigations. Now, to bring it back to Masons, uh, because why not? Um, throughout their histories, to different degrees, all three of these mafias have continued to send members into Italian Masonic lodges and other secret societies. And in fact, Italy has had so much trouble with secret societies that have designs on how the state should function and how it should be run, launching terrorist insurgencies, um, just becoming flat out organized crime cartels. They've had so much trouble with it that they've actually had to introduce an article into the constitution forbidding membership in things like the uh, P2 Masonic Lodge, which we're, again, we are going to discuss that, forbidding membership of the Mafia, of Undrangata, of the Camorra, because they've had so much trouble with it. But these Masonic Lodges do still exist on the down low, and mobsters, wherever possible, do still join them. And this cross-pollination helps these gangsters build links to the upper world and have a say in state governance, even up to today. And strictly speaking, none of them have a political ideology as such, none of them. 
they've worked with right-wingers, corrupt socialists, trade unionists, bosses, and more for centuries. Flexible is probably the better way to think about what their politics as such actually are. So, for instance, with Cosa Nostra, when liberal radicals wanted to tear down the Bourbon regime in the 1840s, Cosa Nostra and the Camorra offered guns and manpower. Uh, when guys like Bernardino Vero seemed likely to spark a socialist revolution on the island of Sicily in the early 1900s, the Corleone Mafia clan initiated him into the family and turned on him probably only after calculating that the Italian state would turn out to be stronger than Bernardino Vero's left-wing syndicalist movement. And despite Mussolini's clampdown against the organizations in the 20s, which my take is that a lot of that was PR, um, but despite that, there were plenty of higher-ranking bosses who were happy to call themselves fascists in exchange for lucrative public works contracts and mayoral posts. And essentially, Mussolini's whole strategy anyway was to out-mafia the mafia in terms of how he ran Italy. And, you know, your average gangster is going to find a home in that kind of environment. Uh, when the Allies swept in at the end of World War II, the mob suddenly loved democracy and they were happy to help the CIA beat back the communists and trade unionists and they were happy to organise bombings and assassinations for the far right during the years of lead as we touched on last episode. And then with the fall of the Eastern Bloc and the end of the Cold War, they quickly expanded more and more into Eastern Europe and forged close business links with the emerging criminal syndicates in those regions as well. Uh, the relationships that they build with representatives from legitimate institutions like banks and financial firms are maybe the most important to the mafias today in terms of the globalised economy that we all live in. Uh, due to the way that they've insinuated themselves into different industries like textile manufacturing or waste management and shipping, all three outfits have transport networks that they can use to smuggle drugs and arms and people across Europe and around the world. And the more chaotic and lawless a situation becomes in a place like, say, Bosnia or the Balkans in general in the 90s or Libya and Syria today, the higher a price they can charge for the use of their smuggling routes and the goods and the people that they're moving along them. And this is a side effect, obviously, of the West's imperial adventures because with every kind of war we start or inflame um, and every bombing that we carry out that increases the number of people who are trying to escape particular war zones, they can often become the prey of organized crime. And because of Italy's location in Europe, as we've seen over the last decade especially, it's a crucial transit hub for a huge number of refugees fleeing the chaos and instability that the West has created in their home countries. It's incredible really to step back and think about how all of that is actually bound up, how it all is part of the, the same system, the same cycle. It's business that essentially creates business. The money that mafia groups make 
is invested in legitimate businesses and properties at home in Italy and elsewhere. And this in turn creates a larger and larger web of contacts and friendships in the upper world. And these are people who rely on the clans escaping police investigations to keep stock portfolios looking good. And entire sectors of the legal economy, especially property, uh, particularly in Italy, buoyant. And then a horde of financiers and accountants and lawyers can exact higher and higher commissions for helping the organizations evade arrest and prosecution and for laundering the profits from drug deals and human trafficking and everything else through banks and businesses. Now, I'm not saying this is all part of some intricate and fiendish plot that's directed by like a single group of people sitting around a table in a dark room. But I am saying that kind of the system incentivizes this stuff because the money talks and everybody involved is looking to get paid. Now, remember the 3.5% GDP figure that I mentioned earlier when it came to the Andrangheta and how much of Italy's economy it takes up? Well, consider that cocaine alone is worth $330 billion a year, billion with a B to the global dark economy. Human trafficking brings in at least 150 billion, again, with a B. These are absolutely mind-boggling figures. And all of that money has to go somewhere. It has to soak up to the legal economy. And if you're thinking that this is just consigned to a few like uh, unethical banks in Italy or failed parts of Eastern Europe or whatever, have a look at what Roberto Saviano had to say at the Hay Festival in 2016. And I'm quoting him directly here. If I asked what is the most corrupt place on earth, you might say it's Afghanistan or maybe Greece or Nigeria or the south of Italy. I would say it is the UK. What is corrupt is the financial capital. 90% of the owners of capital in London have their headquarters offshore. Jersey and the Caymans are the access gates to criminal capital in Europe. The UK is the country that allows it. That is why it is important, why it is so crucial for me to talk to you, because I want to say this is about you, this is about your life, and this is about your government. And what he's effectively saying is that London now is just a gigantic washing machine for the profits of organised crime. And while the Italian syndicates are by no means solely responsible for this, a lot of that money, especially if it's coming from mainland Europe or the Middle East or the former Eastern Bloc countries, a lot of that money has passed through the hands of the three Italian mafias before it reaches the city of London. And when you then consider the openly corrupt relationship between the city and the British government and property developers and such like, you see how it's in everybody's interest for the underlying economic situation and these business relationships to remain fundamentally intact even if a few people get sacrificed in headline grabbing arrests every now and again and the sheer number of middlemen and intermediaries involved in this weird hybrid dark and light economy means that it's very hard to build a coherent picture of these parasitic interdependent relationships between the underworld and the upper world
but yeah i think that's where i'd like to leave it for now um next episode of course we are finally going to be talking about um calvi god's banker and p2 masonic lodge our friends in the mafia are going to turn up once again and then after that we are doing a full-on uh exploration of the matanza the great mafia war of the 1980s and the ramifications that that had for the italian state um after that i'm not really sure where i'm gonna take the podcast next um i don't want to do any of the more well-trodden stories that you might have heard elsewhere i will dig something up i always do but until then that's pretty much it oh shit also before i forget uh, we now have a shiny new email address for the podcast. Let me bring it up. It is ghoststoriesend at gmail.com. Ghoststoriesend is all one word, all lowercase. I'm not sure that makes a difference, but never mind. Uh, ghoststoriesend at gmail.com. Um, so if you have any uh, suggestions, any requests for a particular topic that you want to hear discussed, any questions for me that you might have, whatever, feel free to email that and I will try my hardest to get back to you in a timely manner. But as for now, that's pretty much it, guys, until next time. So as always, thanks for listening and don't get captured. Cheers, guys. Here comes a roly-poly man and he's singing songs of love Roly-poly, roly-poly, roly-poly